Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by Jude Blanchett. He is the Freeman Chair of China Studies at CSIS in D.C., um, and he has just written a wonderful book called China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. I've just completed the book, and my first question would be, how did you think of kind of, what was the reason you wrote hmm. a book on this topic? It's not that frequently discussed in Western literature. Yeah, the the genesis of the book started around 2010, 2011, uh, I think with an individual you know as well, Mao Yushur, who is the head of a, at the time, it's just been uh, shut down, but a, a liberal-leaning think tank called the Unirul Institute. And Mao Yushur is a, a fascinating individual who uh, had been uh, branded a rightist in the anti-rightist uh, campaign, and then in the Cultural Revolution, was living in Wangfujing with his family and had series, uh, suffered a series of violent attacks and emerged out of the post-Mao era, uh, working at the uh, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, became a self-taught economist, um, but always remembered uh, China's history and thought it was important that that history is told and retold if the nation is going to finally heal and move forward. And so in 2011, he wrote a, a short essay, very critical of Mao Zedong. I think writing an article that was probably um, the consensus view in the United States about Mao, the sort of Mao as a monster, which I grew up thinking. And suddenly I saw this really violent upsurge of uh, online and offline protests against Mao Yushur. I was working for a, um, a small uh, US-based think tank, um, and I was working there helping to establish think tanks around the Asia region. This is not a job you could do now in China, uh, but there was a brief period, the relatively open period of Hu Jintao where that was able to be done. And I just became fascinated with these individuals who were attacking uh, this octogenarian who had lived through the Cultural Revolution and thought their story, although I disagree with them, their story was one that was important if we were to understand the complexities of China and China's intellectual uh, intellectual debate. Mm -hmm. And the book kind of deals with all the ebbs and flows yeah. in the last 40 years and kind of moves towards the, the more party-controlled society to the more liberal periods. Yeah. What was the biggest impediment in conducting the research? Honestly, the, the um, opportunities to interview these folks became very difficult and limited as the general crackdown uh, over the past couple of years, that even for neo-Maoists who in many ways supported uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping, um, they were caught up in the, um, the restrictions on civil society. And so it just became harder and harder to have discussions with them. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing. And then, of course, my, my rubbish Chinese, uh, because these were, all these interviews were conducted in, in, Chinese. in Chinese. And so uh, my, it's funny, when I look back on my notes I was taking, all my notes are written in pinyin with circles around words that I, I could write down the pinyin but didn't quite understand what they said. So, um, so, so the general tightening actually affected your ability to do this research. Yeah, as, as, as for anyone who's, who's read the book and wonders why it stopped so suddenly, that's, a, that's a, a function of two things, the deadline 
uh, and it just became difficult to continue the narrative of, of, uh, of really personal reactions with, with these people, which I wanted to drive the story as much as just reading online articles. So my first, so uh, all told, I lived in, for 10 years, but over a, now a 20-year period, starting with, the, I landed, um, well, 19 years, I landed the month before China acceded into the WTO as a, as a young student in, in Beijing. Yeah. Was there a point in time when you thought that this conflict, obviously before you started the book, because then you realized the conflict was going to go on, was there a point in time that you thought that the conflict was over? that the, the, the anti-Mao faction had basically prevailed. Or yeah, yeah. This, you know, because I kind of did different points in time. I think especially around 2011, 2012, the same time that the party leadership was thinking that the neo-Maoists were prevailing because you had this charismatic party secretary out in Chongqing named Bo Xilai, who was gunning for the top, and he had a, a genuine populist movement behind him, albeit with Chinese characteristics. Uh, we don't think populism is possible in China. We think it's so restricted, but but you see the seams there, and you see that um, the Chinese people are extraordinarily political when when uh, given the opportunity. So I think talking to Neo Maoists, that 2011-2012 period before Bo was was purged in in March of 20, 2012, they really felt like they finally had a political figure who was uh, advocating for a form of socialism. And, and had prospects to, to move to the very top. But that, of course, came shattering down when uh, the Communist Party crushed all the, the neo-Maoist websites in, in the spring of 2012. Yeah, and the book spends a lot of time talking about Borsilani and talking about the populist movement. Yeah. Do you think he really believed it, or was this his way of, of getting to the top? I've asked myself yeah. that question many times. I dealt with him when he was in um, when he was minister of commerce, and then before that, when he was a provincial leader. Uh, you know, so you you well, so you have a better sense from a from a from actual interaction with him than I do. I, I know him through uh, through through my own research. I think. Clearly, here's a here's an individual who sends his you know his kids to swanky private schools and and uh, wears flashy clothes. Wears flashy clothes. We have a tendency, I think, to view um, uh, the, the party and ideology in these stark contrasts of either they're all in or or they're complete hypocrites. And I think, as in the way we have a blending of. You know, everyone here proclaims to believe in the, the, the founding fathers, but it comes in many different varieties and with a fair amount of hypocrisy slathered on top. So I think there's there's elements of Bo Xilai who uh, uh, clearly was, was a, he's a politician. He's a real uh, retail politician. He had a base, uh, was playing to the base. But I don't think it's so simple as he didn't believe any of it. Um, I think he believed in a form of this, this sort of watered-down socialism that has become the standard for the party uh, over the past four decades. Um, but look, there's, there's no real party, uh, uh, there's no real senior party leader who doesn't have a, a wellspring of sympathy for Mao Zedong. Um, they may be conflicted about it. They, their personal experience may color it, shade it. They may have some you know, negative feelings about Mao. But from Deng on down, um, you know, the, the, the legacy of Mao is extraordinarily complicated and is not as simple as we've uh, often painted it to be. And I think that's why folks like the neo-Maoists catch us by surprise. Yeah, but President Xi, of course, his father was purged yeah. by Mao. Yeah. And it was before the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. He had spent 13 years eating bitterness. Yeah. So does it surprise you that he's kind of allowed for Maoists to make somewhat of a return? Not really. And to, to return to, the, to what I was just saying, um, 
you know, Deng had a, a wellspring of sympathy for, for Mao Zedong, despite, uh, despite himself being purged by, by Mao a couple times. Um, you know, this is why I think Xi Jinping looks back at, at Mao and does have a kind of what do they call the, the San Chi Kai, the 7030 uh, view of him of here's someone who took a country which is poor, broken, subject to colonial oversight and the boot on its neck, took it within 10 years to be a, a country, you know, by the late 1950s, which was standing, you know, had, had stood toe to toe with the United States in the Korean War, had was now standing toe to toe with the Soviet Union, had gone from a position of, you know, backward brokenness into, you know, uh, developing atomic weapons. Um, so I can see from a, a, a state power nationalist perspective why Mao Zedong is an extremely alluring person, personality. And um, again, we, we constantly get these, these figures wrong in Chinese politics by assuming because they touch the Cultural Revolution, therefore they're going to want to purge the entire legacy of Mao and the Communist Party. And, you know, time and time again, we've been We've been misreading those cues. Yeah. We always analyze people in the context of our own experience. Yeah. And my experience, when I was the age that President Xi was Xiaofan, you know, um, I experienced the war in Vietnam. Yeah. And that has basically formed my views of how U.S. foreign relations should be conducted. And I would think that the same would be true of Xi. And it created, because he was living on a mountaintop, you know, the afterwards vice premier going to the best schools in yeah. Beijing and then he's sent to the countryside and that created an insecurity in him that I think affects all policy decisions yeah. today. Look out five or ten years. How do you see this conflict playing out? In one way, the struggle over, over neo-Maoism, narrowly, narrowly speaking, is over. The, the party has moved in very effectively and, and crushed um, the the possibility of neo-Maoists as a dissident movement, both because neo-Maoism existed primarily online. Um, that sphere, which was relatively raucous 10 years ago, uh, has now all but, all but been tamed. But more importantly for me is, what did the neo-Maoists represent in terms of a set of ideas uh, that are um, that trace their origin back to uh, the moment Mao died and the announce, announcing of the reform and openings? Uh, Deng Xiaoping said no debate in 1992 very clearly. We've decided on a state capitalist model. This is the direction. This is the way that we're going. And what neo-Maoists indicate to me is there are strong voices in China who are, um, like in any country, and this should be normal and expected, are dissatisfied with the direction the country is going. And although there may be some temporary support or a temporary truce with Xi Jinping because of his state power um, nationalist vision, um, this, the, the contradictions, as the Marxists would say, or these, these tensions over uh, economic, social policy, and anxiety still run deep in China. And the party tries to pave over those. Um, it tries to shut those voices down. It tries to marginalize those, those voices, as most political powers do in any country in the world. But we assume that the, that the quiescence of those voices means that they've gone away. Uh, and I expect the party understands that those tensions are still there and run deep which is why uh, it will always be there to, uh, I think it'll all be, always try to be uh, holding those, those voices at bay. Very quickly, because we're out of time, what are the lessons for the future that you draw from the book? 
uh, outsiders watching China, and I'll basically speak for myself, need to have a much better calibration of uh, all the voices in the country and all the debates, not just the simplistic, as we are off, off to do, you know, conservative versus reformer. You know, China is bursting with political activity, and the party state's control over uh, civil society shouldn't confuse us that there is no civil society. That's a great conclusion. Well, this gives you a flavor of what is in Jude Blanchett's new book. It is absolutely a great read. Uh, it's called China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. And Jude, thank you for joining us. Thank today. you very much. It's a pleasure.